This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius with your host, Lance Vantanar. Welcome to the Thinking Like a Genius podcast. And today's episode, I got the privilege of having Janet Zadina with me as a guest. And this one is going to be an interesting episode. Janet and I have been communicating on email for a while, talking about various topics. And I was very, very happy that she agreed to be on the episode. And I wanted to make sure that we delved into some very interesting topics based on her research and her work. So, Janet, can you give people a bit of an introduction about, one, who you are, what you do, and a bit about your background, and then we'll dive into some of the topics. Yes, good afternoon, Lance. Thank you for having me. I was a teacher for many years, high school and community college, and I taught reading, and I was disturbed that my older students, high school or college, couldn't read. And so I got a master's and a reading specialist, and there still weren't any good answers. And one day I saw an article in the newspaper that a scientist, Christiana Leonard, was giving brain scans to college students with dyslexia, looking for neuroanatomical risk factors. And so I said, I want to do that. And it's like, what? You can't just go become a neuroscientist and do brain scans. But I enrolled in the PhD program in education. And I set up a collaboration with the medical school who was also interested in following up on her research. And I did my dissertation giving brain scans to college students with and without dyslexia, measuring certain areas of the brain in a collaboration between the Department of Neurology at Tulane Medical School and University of New Orleans. So then I was awarded a postdoctoral fellowship in neuroscience and continued researching. And then Hurricane Katrina destroyed all of that. I uh, evacuated to Florida. We couldn't come back for a year. I ended up staying longer and working with a scientist looking at post-traumatic stress disorder, which I had already been volunteering for a project here in New Orleans, where I am again now, on post-traumatic stress disorder, non-pharmacological interventions. And my speaking career was taking off while I was still in the lab. So at some point, I would have had to make that choice anyway, and I feel like I can help more people by giving the talks than doing some very specific studies on neuroanatomy. So now I work full-time uh, writing books and giving uh, workshops and keynoting conferences on the brain and learning and on the brain and stress and learning. A couple of my favorite topics. There's something I just wanted to find out a bit more information about your work that you've done on dyslexia and the brain scans. What interesting anomalies or what interesting aspects did you notice during that research? What did you find out from the brain scans in that regard? One of the things that we found out was that the frontal lobe or the prefrontal area in people with dyslexia was 11% larger than in pe people without dyslexia. Now that ties into later research that showed that poor readers tend to use more frontal areas in the brain where the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is that's involved in working memory, whereas good readers tend to use more posterior areas in the back of the brain. So it's not surprising that then we would find that. I followed that up looking at the corpus callosum since we used that as the anterior boundary in our measurement. So 
I developed a new method for segmenting the corpus callosum. And I found that that different sections, the size correlated with certain aspects of reading. So that's never been followed up on. Now I think the focus tends to be more on fMRI and activation of areas, whereas I was looking at MRI and more structural differences. Okay. And the other area that you did research in was uh, PTSD and stress-related changes or you know, in the brain structure. What did you find out from that? Well, that research got destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. At the time, I was volunteering and going over to VA hospital and working with a scientist who was using meditation as an intervention with the older veterans. And what I brought to the project was the measurement of heart rate variability, which was a very new concept then. And now we know that when you are constantly in a state of fight or flight, as can be the case sometimes with PTSD, you don't have heart rate variability. Your heart rate's always fast. So you're stuck in the sympathetic nervous system. So that got destroyed. And then we were trying to set something up at the time. This has been about 16 years ago. And we were trying to set something up with a VA hospital. And we were over in Florida we were a little ahead of our time. So what I did at that time was examined all the literature on non, non-pharmacological interventions and have followed that since, such as yoga and qigong and meditation and so forth. This is an interesting area because obviously Stephen Porges has created the polyvagal theory and he's done a significant amount of work looking at the vagus nerve and obviously PTSD and the treatment for that. Have you looked or read into a lot of his research? I've looked at a little of it. What I'm focusing on now is showing educators how they can do this for themselves and for their students is activate their vagus nerve certain activities that can help activate the parasympathetic nervous system and calm them down and reduce anxiety. And how would people go about doing that if, if they're looking to find out about the vagus nerve? Because it's, it's still a bit of a hidden gem in certain aspects because a lot of people are not very aware of it and how it integrates into the body How would they activate the vagus nerve? Because there's some generic advice that people talk about, you know, cold showers, singing, laughing, humming is obviously, and then the the most common one is breathing because it's the easiest way of controlling it or activating. What other methods are you, uh, do you suggest people use? Well, you pretty much named all the methods that I suggest. The simplest one that you can do with students Uh, in the classroom is that since we know that the exhale activates more the the parasympathetic nervous system on the exhale. So if you extend the exhale, you stimulate the vagus nerve and activate the parasympathetic rest and digest calming nervous system. So one of the ideal breaths is six breaths a minute. So it's not what we used to say is take a few deep breaths. We want to say take a few slow breaths. And so if you kind of count to four on the inhale and count to six on the exhale, you are getting more activation on the exhale. So that's one of the easiest ways. Then, of course, you've heard of people who meditate and they go, um, and if you put your finger on your throat, you can feel the vibration. Well, it turns out that's very effective in activating the vagus nerve. And as you mentioned, humming works as well as that. And splashing cold water on your face, you know, we've done that for I don't know how long, and now we know why it works. Because stimulates the the vagus nerve. So it's very important that if you notice that 
your pulse doesn't change, whether you're being active or whether you're resting or whatever, then you probably will also note that it may be a little faster than 60 to 80 beats a minute. And you may want to do some of these strategies to try and activate your parasympathetic nervous system because you may be kind of stuck in the sympathetics. These are old areas which I become very fascinated with from a lot of the research that I've done, specifically looking at meditation and activating the vagus nerve during breathing. So I'm very happy that you've mentioned it because there's a lot of research which is now focusing on a lot of these, you could say, correlating areas between breathing, meditation, and also taking a look at, you know, how the brain changes. Have you done any research specifically on neuroplasticity and meditation at all? I'm no longer doing research myself. What I do is, because I have been in the lab and I have done brain research, I can read the studies and I know how to evaluate whether they are good studies or not. And then I translate that information into credible practices. So I keep up with the literature. And in the literature review of this, you know, we do see changes in the cortex as a result of meditation. So experienced meditators, well, such as some of the Buddhist monks that have volunteered to get brain scans, you know, do show evidence of changes in the cortex as a result of extensive meditation. But it doesn't take extensive meditation or becoming a Buddhist monk to see changes in the brain. You can see some changes pretty quickly with starting a meditation practice. That's fine. So the research that I've been looking at does support that, which I find is incredibly exciting because meditation obviously is is a practice of becoming a lot more mainstream. You mentioned something about reading the research and make uh, and understanding whether the research is, you could say, not valid, but can be translated into something functional, but also is good research in the way that it's the the study has got a lot of uh, either a lot of um, participants in it, and there's no you could say errors in the in the uh, you could say argument or the hypothesis in the in the actual study itself. What do you look for when you're reading through studies? What are the main things that you try and focus on to understand whether the study is worthwhile and it's something that's going to give a result that's going to be actionable at the end of it? Okay. I want to back up just one second and say that something I just read recently showing that uh, spiritual fitness can maybe Spiritual fitness may be preventative against Alzheimer's, and there's some evidence that it can reverse memory loss. And they were showing that there's basically two kinds of meditation. There's focused meditation and open awareness meditation. And they, the two types activate different brain areas and create different brain changes. So it can depend on the practice that you use. But to go back and and see what I look for? Well, as I look at the new research that I read, and I try to see, you know, people will publish things for their schoolwork or whatever, you know, as they're getting their degrees. And and you have to look and see, is this just a preliminary study? As you said, how many people did they look at and so forth? But the other thing that I ask myself is, what does this mean? Is this applicable to the classroom or not. Because what happened when we first started looking at the brain and learning, when people first started talking and writing about that, people were making leaps from the literature to the classroom that were not credible. For example, when Dr. Sperry tried to stop seizures by severing the corpus callosum in people with seizures so that the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere 
would no longer be communicating and perhaps would stop the seizures. That's when they discovered that the two hemispheres had some different specializations. And that's when the brain myth of left brain, right brain got started. And then people started making all kinds of assumptions and leaps and saying, we're going to do a left-brained activity or you are a right-brained person, so you should learn like this. But you see, we have not had that surgery. The students have not had that surgery. They don't do that anymore. They don't do lobotomies anymore either, okay? So the hemispheres work together. So one of the things I try to do is to dispel some of the myths that got started and it actually gave this whole field kind of a bad name. They called it brain-based learning and there were lots of myths being perpetuated. People were saying to do things that really were not based on neuroscience. So that whole area got kind of a bad reputation. And now the field is more called educational neuroscience is one of the terms. And we try to dispel those myths and to suggest practices that are a little more closely linked to the conclusions of the research. What are some of the main, you could say, statements that people are aware of that are in your popular media that you have to dispel? Okay, well, we know the left brain, right brain. <laughs> so we just don't want to say that anymore, okay? Because people are not left brained or right brained, but sometimes certain tasks activate one hemisphere more than the other. But you see, it doesn't really have application in the classroom. Uh, so another one is the old. We only use 10% of our brain. Somebody wrote that in a self-help book a long time ago, and everybody kept quoting it. But you see, now we can look inside the brain as it does different tasks. And we know that we use all of our brain, but not all at the same time. Some areas are more active than others, more activated. We can see that now with techniques such as uh, functional neuroimaging and so forth. So we don't want to believe that anymore. In fact, instead, we want to be aware of cognitive overload. When we are multitasking and we are trying to use too many parts of our brain at once and trying to process too much at once, we are just going to get cognitive fatigue as well as the fact that it isn't really multitasking. It's switching tasks and switching attention, and we know that it's not effective. Interestingly enough, the people that who actually believe that they're really good at it in the research were found to be the worst. <laughs> so the people that use it more actually were worse at it. So we want to talk about cognitive overload. Your brain in some ways is similar to a computer in that you can only process so much at a time. You know, if you try to run too many programs on a computer, what will happen? Things will slow down. So we can only process so much at a time. And everything going on uses some of the brain's resources. So if there's distraction in the background, or you've got your cell phone pinging, and you've got something else going on, that's all using some of that brain power that you have so that the task you're trying to accomplish, the most important task is getting less brain power. So also when we're teaching students, we want to give them mental breaks. Maybe every 10 minutes, just a pause, just a little break where you might ask a question or tell a story or use a metaphor. When you're working, you might just glance up and look out the window a minute and give your brain just a little rest. You know, like when you're in the gym and you're doing reps and then you stop and then you pause for a few seconds and then you do the reps again. So we want to be aware of that. Now, one of the 
most prevalent myths and the one that I'm having a hard time trying to dispel is the learning styles myth. Now, I am a fan of the teachers who first got on the learning styles bandwagon because they were realizing that students do learn differently and they were trying to address that. But when we know better, we do better. And we were able to look inside the brains of learners now, we are able, and see as they do math or as they read or as they do different tasks. And so we realize that somebody is not a visual or an auditory or a kinesthetic learner. And when we label, we limit. That's all we're accomplishing with that. Instead, what we want to do is to bring more brain power to a task. We want to, if possible, use visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. And that's only one kind of pathway in the brain. It's what I call the sensory motor system. It's what it's called, what I call. Okay, it's called the sensory motor system. And there are many other pathways involved in learning, as I wrote in my book, Multiple Pathways to the Student Brain. So this accomplishes nothing. The one thing we want to keep in mind is that according to Medina, all learners are visual learners because the brain is highly visual. So unless you're visually impaired, you want to always make things as visual as possible. But then we also want to bring in the auditory if we can and the kinesthetic and then many other pathways involved in learning, such as the emotion pathway and the reward pathway and others. What you explaining and is very, very true is, I think, something that a lot of people fundamentally realize, but they get too caught up on shortcuts and they get caught up with a lot of easy catchphrases. And when you think about how people learn, even as they're growing up, a little child, they tend to crawl around, they touch things, they taste things, they look at things, they study things, they listen, they, they're obviously smelling things but they're very sensory in how they learn and how they approach something. So their whole way of processing information is not just about seeing something and trying to absorb the information. They're looking at it, they're touching it, they want to taste it because that builds recognitions and patterns because the brain is very good in pattern recognition. It's one of the ways that it does a lot of its processing. And as you said, the reward pathways that come in, when you start identifying patterns, you get a bit of a dopamine hit and you get all those reward aspects that tie into it and becomes, you could say, self-perpetuating and wanting to learn more. You become a lot more motivated because you're enjoying what you're doing and you're finding out new things and it's a novelty aspect that ties into it, which is why all of these different aspects of learning makes learning a lot more richer because you're stimulating the brain from multiple senses and it activates those reward pathways and it makes it novel, it makes it exciting because people have to pay attention because there's not just one input that they have to focus on, which normally happens from rote learning or just trying to stare at a book. You become bored unless it's really engaging information or something that you're really interested in. You've got to find other ways of activating various parts of the brain to almost wake it up and to say, look, this is important or this is something worthwhile learning. And that's a very valuable thing because if you think about sport or any team activity, invariably it involves multiple forms of learning. You've got visual, you've got sensory, you've got smell, you've got hearing, you've got auditory. And these are all things that make sports so exciting is because you've got this full sensory input into the brain which makes people a lot more interested and caught up in it even if you think about art when you look at art there's a lot of various aspects of it especially with the painting paintings people try and get that sensory input of trying to get color they got shape they got textures they're trying to evoke emotional aspects of it 
and again music you've got all of these senses that you're trying to activate at the same time you've got the vibration of the sound you've got the pitch differences and you've also got the emotional aspect that it tends to tie into because people you know either like it or don't like it but you try and get this multi-sensory input which is why it's there's so much enjoyment and why it's such a big industry so it's a, it's an interesting uh, approach that you uh, that you've got and that you're working to kind of dispel these myths. Well said, Lance. That is very interesting what you just explained. And so in school, we're not doing that comprehensive approach as much as we could be. And you mentioned one thing that is very interesting, and that was pattern detection. You know, that's how we learn our first language. You know, even before a baby is born, a baby starts hearing the sounds in another language. And a baby born into a bilingual home can already tell the difference between the two languages and knows that there's two languages because of our innate ability at pattern detection. Humans are uniquely, well, compared to computers, let's say, more able to do pattern detection. I don't know about the animal kingdom, but humans are very, very good at pattern detection. And that's how we first learned our language. And that's how we learn so many things. That's how we learn what a dog is or a cat is through seeing so many examples. So when we get to school, we want to capitalize on that important skill. It's I put that in the reward pathway because if you are not good at pattern detection and you don't see the snake in the grass or the tiger in the bushes, you don't live very long. So we are wired to see patterns and they give us pleasure. That's why people do jigsaw puzzles and so forth. We get that burst of feel-good chemicals when we see patterns. So I say to educators, then why are you not capitalizing on that? Teach backwards. Teach in a way where they figure it out. They see the pattern. Give them many examples so they can figure out the math formula themselves. We've tried so hard to make school easy that we may have robbed it of some of the joy, including this of pattern detection. So instead of figuring it out, handing it to a student and having them memorize, you might give them Venn diagrams or diagrams or something that they fill in. They find the pattern. I think there's a an interesting area which I've looked at, but I've not really had a chance to discuss it. You mentioned about going backwards or learning backwards. Can you explain that a bit more, please? Yes, I always say create the neural network before you name it. And I just saw some research recently on young children. This applies to teaching language, but many other things as well, that you show the object before you name it. Okay, so you build some experience before you name it. So let's say that you were going to teach about prepositions. And the common way of teaching it is to say, a preposition is a word that shows location in space or time, or whatever. And they don't understand that. That's just words because they have no neural network on that, right? So then in the textbooks, they give examples that still might not make sense. But let's say you show, and I wish I could show, what I show to my audiences is, let's say there's an a drawing of an airplane, okay? You put all the prepositions around it, above, over, under, beside. And you show them that drawing. And you say, what are these words doing? And they figure it out. Oh, they're showing location in space or time. So you work with it till they figure it out. And then when they understand the concept, then you say, we call those words prepositions. Then you can go and find the prepositions in the sentences or do whatever the textbooks do. So I say the textbooks, textbooks have it backwards. <laughs> 
that you want to create the experience first. That seems to tie into context a lot to create as much context as possible, which allows people to, you could say, tie things together on their own in their own way. Do you think context plays a big role in that? It's huge. It's one of the things that I really stress in my talks. So James Zoll, he wrote the, uh, the Art of Teaching and the Brain. And he says that the most important factor in learning is the existing neural network of the student, which would be what some people call schema, prior knowledge, background, and so forth. Because when we learn, we start from something we already know and build on it. So we have a context to place the information and build this neural network. So I say that we should start with at least, you know, 10% of our time in presenting a lesson on building the context or the background, building the, the neural network. So making sure there's an, as much, you could say, base or supporting information so that people can almost build their own structure of information. Correct. I wrote a reading textbook. I co-authored a reading textbook, College Developmental Reading. And every chapter began with a little sidebar that said making connections. And there would be maybe seven to 10 questions relating to something they already know. Not what's coming in the chapter, but it's related to what's coming in the chapter. So that they can talk about something they already know. And then when you get into the chapter, you say, oh, this is like this that I already know. So if we're talking about the brain, we could talk about an orchestra. And you say, tell me something about the orchestra. Well, it has different sections. Well, the brain has different regions. And then you say, well, they all work together to make good music. And yes, that's what has to happen in the brain. And the orchestra has a conductor. And in the brain, that would be the frontal lobes. So you start with something like that that helps you make sense of it. And then when you try to remember what you learned, you can always think of the orchestra and it will come to mind. It's very much the same principle that a lot of memory techniques use is using, you would say, known patterns of information to make memorizing easier and associating the, the, the knowledge in a way that's going to make it easier to recall and process and then potentially go, get it into long-term memory. Correct. You know, one of the things, one of the chapters in that book was on author's tone. Is the author being sarcastic or ironic or humorous? And students always had a lot of trouble understanding that. But you know what? They know a lot about tone and you know how? emojis. Okay. So you can use that to introduce it. See, you're not even using the words in the chapter yet. You're just talking about, okay, here are some emojis. What do they represent? What kind of tone? What kind of attitude? And just throw the words in there, but you're not having them memorize that word. And they begin to understand the concept. Sometimes it's the vocabulary that throws them, it's not really that the concept is so difficult. So it's just the underlying knowledge which needs to be plumbed in into the current, you could say, frame of knowledge that they have. Correct. Something else that you've mentioned on your site was talking about, you know, top-down and bottom-up strategies. Can you explain that a bit more and just go into a bit more detail on that? Uh, specifically? Yes, I use that term in my talk on anxiety, stress, trauma, and the brain. And I have a talk for faculty and their stress or for faculty to address students' stress. Okay. And in that, we talk about there are two kinds of ways you can address anxiety, stress, or trauma. So the brain can tell the body what to do that top down. Okay, so the brain perceives a threat and you get anxiety 
And then the body can respond by palms getting clammy, heart racing, your breathing gets shallow and fast and from the upper chest. But the body can also talk to the brain bottom up. We can also call this feed forward, feed backward. So the body has connections back to the brain. So for example, the brain knows that when you are in danger or you think you're in danger, you are experiencing these bodily symptoms like breathing fast and shallow from the chest. But the brain also knows that when you are calm and safe, like when you're sleeping or relaxed, that you are breathing slowly and from the belly. So if you want to use a bottom-up technique and use the body, then what you do is you force yourself to take a few slow breaths, okay? Slow and deep, but mainly slow. And you are sending a message backward, bottom up to the brain saying, I'm safe, turn off the chemicals, turn off the alarms. So some top-down methods can be using the frontal lobes. For example, you talk therapy, that's top-down. Okay, you get therapy and you learn to reframe things or to think differently or to control your anxiety. Now, another top-down method is kind of top-down or bottom-up, depending how you do it, or it can do both, is yoga. When you are doing yoga or meditation, it's another top-down, you are strengthening your frontal lobes. You're resting them and strengthening them. So let's say you're doing a focused attention meditation and you're trying to just focus on your breathing. But within even a minute, your mind will wander several times. And every time that you gently bring your mind back to the breathing, it's like lifting weights in the gym. You are strengthening your frontal lobes. You are gaining control. And when you're doing this, you are using your brain, your frontal lobes to calm your body. Now, you can use bottom up where you use the body to calm your brain. Sometimes when people are very stressed, they cannot meditate. That's not a good time for them to try to learn to meditate. They are too nervous to meditate. And in fact, it makes some people more nervous. And it doesn't work for everyone. And when you have post-traumatic stress disorder, sitting there and trying to, you know, breathe in, breathe out, it might not always work. So then you want to go to bottom up. You want to use the body to control this. And one of the things that I did after Hurricane Katrina was meditative drumming. And I do this with my audiences and they love it because when you are focusing on the slow downbeat on a drum, your heart will entrain to the music. Your heart rate will slow down. When you play slow, slow music, your heart slows down. Fast music, your heart speeds up. But when you are also drumming, slowly and focusing on that drumbeat, you are using your body to slow everything down. And it's very meditative. It's a good way to get into a meditative state quickly. I find that Native American music works very well. You can Google and find meditative drumming online. Another thing is Tai Chi or Qigong. These slow meditative movements Force the body to slow down. And you're not going to be moving like that if you're in danger. So you're sending a message back that everything is fine. I highly recommend getting children in martial arts if they are amenable to it. I don't believe in forcing them into something like that. But the benefits are huge for development of good frontal lobes, because they have to use these higher order executive functions to control their emotions, to focus their attention, and it gives them a lot of self-regulation ability, and that's a form of meditation as well.
Do you think a lot of that also ties into why sports and sometimes extracurricular activities are so important in helping brain development and also improving, you could say, cognitive functioning? I saw an article, I think it was about 12, 18 months ago, where they did some research on students and they compared students that just did maths and, uh, and science and then did a comparative study with students that also had music or art as an additional subject they they were doing. And they found the students that specifically did music as part of their daily curriculum had a better result in their maths and science studies overall. Is that a correlation because of the, you could say, meditative aspect of the music? Or is there a certain amount of focus discipline and also carryover effect from music or those activities into uh, into studies and, and normal school uh, learning. You're absolutely right. It's all of those things. And I also consult for administrators, and I've been consulting for some time with principals who are starting new schools and One of the things that I stress is most important is getting music lessons back in the schools, whether it's singing or playing an instrument. The research, as you mentioned, shows improvement not only in math and the sciences, but also in reading. Because, first of all, it requires focused attention and it requires self-regulation One of the things I think the reason it helps reading is because it's auditory and you are developing the auditory system to a greater degree when you are listening to music more. And it's, it's never too soon to start introducing music. However, please do not play music constantly in the background. If I went into a daycare system, a daycare center, Let's assume I had a child in a daycare center and I went in and found that the employees were playing music constantly for their own entertainment while they were there. I would remove the child because this constant background noise is detrimental to the developing auditory system. Because I'm talking now with infants and young children, any part of the brain develops through use. Uh, To give you an example of some research, the scientists took some newborn kittens. They did not harm the kittens, but they put a patch over one eye. And then a few weeks later, when they took the patch off, the kittens were permanently blind in that eye. They had not damaged the eye physically, but the connections were not made because the eye wasn't used. Okay. So... The auditory system is developing and it needs to hear subtle sounds. It needs to hear the wind and the birds and the rustle of leaves. And it needs to hear language distinctly. One of the new theories about dyslexia is that it's not visual, it's auditory. It's not that they can't see the difference between B and D. It's that they can't hear the difference. So if you tell them to point to a B, they might not know if you said B or D. So when you have loud noise in a home, you have the TV on all the time, you have loud music on all the time, or you have white noise. You have that sound machine running in the baby's bedroom or a loud air conditioning system. You are masking these important sound distinctions that are going to be needed for reading and for phonics. So the same thing goes with the eyesight. If the child is always looking at a screen, what is happening with the development of the distance vision and peripheral vision? And One day I I looked outside and I saw, I hope she was just the nanny, okay, pushing a a toddler, I mean, a young child in a buggy, right? But the child was on the screen in the buggy. Now, the whole purpose of taking a child outside 
is the distance vision and to feel the air on the skin and to hear the subtle sounds. And so kind of off the track with the music and the arts, but music, art, and play are going to develop a better brain. Sadly, recess is being canceled in some schools, even at the pre-K level, when actually we should be encouraging more free play and structured play. You need both. And music and art, because to me, the main thing is to grow a good brain and a healthy mind because you want lifelong learners. And as we see now, I know many people who might not have a formal education, but have become quite self-educated, reading, maybe watching the History Channel, things like that. And they learn a lot. But someone who can't read well or has been turned off against school might not become that lifelong learner. I'm not saying content isn't important. I'm just saying you need both. The most important part for me has always been a driver or a curiosity to learn and being willing to learn. I think once you lose the willingness to learn and you're just relying on you know, life as it goes, it robs you of a lot of ability to develop as a person. And I think it does seem to exhibit in certain behaviors where people tend to have these lifelong patterns of behavior that they never really change. And the ability for a person to change depends on their ability to be a lifelong learner. So that's, you could say, my personal view on it, whether it's true or not, I've yet to see. But I think invariably most people do have a desire to learn and to change. But I think it also there's a certain amount of willingness to do it, but also a certain amount of environmental or potentially situations that they're in which will allow that to happen. But I think it also comes down to whether a person does want to go down that path. If they're happy with the way that their life is, then that's their choice and that's what they like to do, each to their own life and their choices. So I'm I'm not here to you know, prescribe to people how they should do it. I think it, it's very much a, a choice that somebody has to make themselves and how willing, how willing they, are, they are to do it. But I do think the more we instill that curiosity and that, you could say, habit of being a lifelong learner in young, te- uh, young children or even teenagers and say to them, look, find something that you love doing and become as good as possible in doing that. And then try and branch out into other areas and see how you can relate that knowledge. Now what you've got is you've created that ability for that person to become a lifelong learner because you can say, take something you like and develop it. Become the best that you are at it and find out how good you can be in that. And that's what makes somebody a lifelong learner in my view. That's very interesting, Lance. And also, you made me think of one thing is I often try to figure out what makes some people stay young and others turn into old people. What, what, you know what I'm saying is they're the same chronological age and some are like old and some are young mentally. And I think you may have hit on some of it is that uh, desire to keep learning you know, and keep changing things up and growing. But what you were saying about developing what a child is interested in, you know, that brings me to one of the things I recommend in my book and my talks, and that is a homework menu. If you're going to give homework, instead of giving an assignment, you give a menu of choices of how to process that information. There are many ways you can work with a topic to learn it, to fire and wire it. And so why not give them a choice? The thing that made the PhD program to me easier than getting my master's was because we were allowed to pursue our interests. That's what we were doing. We were developing our expertise. And I don't see why that can't be done more in school because you're, you're growing the brain and we cannot teach all content anymore. 
So let students specialize. I suggest that at the beginning of a semester, the teacher tell the class that each of you is going to become an expert on one of these topics. Okay, one of the topics in the syllabus or the textbook. And you are going to actually present some information that isn't in the book. You are going to be the expert and they get to pick which chapter. So now what you're doing is you're allowing them to have choice, which is huge, and a stress reducer, but also to pursue their area of interest and perhaps their own expertise or to find an area of interest. And if they all pick the same chapter because they think it's the easiest, well, let it go. But each of them, I mean, you know, the point is give them this choice and then they have to do some research to try and find something that the teacher might not even know. And it also gives them this satisfaction and it may help create, you know, the lifelong learner. I think it's a very valid point and I think it's a very elegant way of making teaching a lot more exciting instead of trying to hammer in information into people that don't really want to learn. So now you, you, you're engaging them a lot more. Janet, I really appreciate your time. It's been a fascinating podcast interview. How can people find out more about you and how can they get hold of you if they want to have or attend any of your talks or get involved with you in any way, shape or form? All right, then. Thank you. Uh, it's been wonderful. Very stimulating. I enjoyed your thoughts on this. My email is janetzadina at gmail.com. J-A-N-E-T, Z like zebra, A-D-I-N-A, janetzadina at gmail. Also, my webpage is www.brainresearch.us. So if you Google my name, that usually comes up first. Or if you can remember, brainresearch.us. And I have tons of resources for your audience, Lance. I've got all kinds of web links. There's things on the trauma. There's things on brain health, parenting, learning differences, all kinds of things if they go to the resources tab. There's also a page called Coping with COVID that will give them some anxiety, stress, and trauma resources. And there's the Butterfly Project, which is more related to post-traumatic stress disorder after natural disaster, because before the pandemic, I would go to areas around the world after a natural disaster to help people understand that you're not losing your mind, you didn't get brain damage, because that's how people feel under this stress and help them understand what is happening. So if you're interested in a workshop, I'm starting, I'm writing a new one now for students, a three-part one for students to help them understand all the things that we're talking today, talking about today. So again, my email, janetzadina at gmail.com. Excellent. Janet, thank you very much for your time. I do appreciate it. And I'll share that all in the show notes. So I'll make sure that people can get your website and contact you when they want to get in, get in touch. Thank you so much, Lance. When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains a shout out on the podcast.